0: You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Welcome to Anthem Church. My name's Stan. Uh, We're going to be studying the Bible together this morning. And so then we've got, you're like, do they normally have a horse trough up there? No, not (laughs) typically. Um, But today's going to be a couple baptisms excited about too. And so we're going to kind of plow through about four chapters of Exodus and then leave some time. You're like, yeah, that's a lot. Yes, I know. And then I got to leave time for these guys to share their stories. And so, if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can open them up to Exodus chapter seven. And this is going to be the start of the plagues. And so, uh, for those of you that are new with us and you're just visiting, let me set a little bit of a context to the story here. And so. Genesis, the first book of scripture, you see God give a promise to Abraham. He's saying, I'm gonna give you so many descendants, they're gonna be numerous, like the stars in the sky, sands on the seashore, you're gonna have so many descendants. And this promise kind of gets played out and we see Joseph as as one of the last figures in the book of Genesis, where he goes to Egypt and God's people, uh, this tribe of Israel, go to Egypt and they kind of um, live there in the most productive land, have lots of babies. Um, become a great nation. And Egypt looks out at them and they're like, there's a lot of people. We got to do something about this. And so they're they're trying to figure in like, if somebody comes to war against us, what's going to keep these guys from turning their backs on us and uh, going in with our enemies and killing us? And so they're like, we know what we'll do. We'll enslave them. And so you pick up the story in Exodus where this Group of God's people had been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And so they've been there for 400 years. And, and again, you, we're going to be in seven, but just to recap last week, uh, here, some of you guys don't know where Egypt's at on the map. So let me show you. You get that? Okay. There's, uh, is that, where is that at? Yeah. Um, Okay, I was like looking at it from this angle, and I'm like, that doesn't look right. There, okay, you see Africa, you see Egypt. Trust me, from this angle, you can come up here after service and look at it. I'm like, looks like this all ocean. Um, And so you see where Egypt is, it's Africa. Guys, this would have been close to like Grand Central Station of the ancient world, right? The trade routes from Europe, Asia, and then Africa would have all kind of gone through um, this holy land, but certainly Egypt would have been in that spot. And so this is where God's people are at. This is where all this is taking place. And so you have Pharaoh who is there, who is act, acting as the ruler, the king uh, of that place. And so in Exodus 5 from last week, we see this, that, that Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, uh, hey, you should let my people go. <laughs> Pharaoh's response, who is the Lord that I should ab- obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord and moreover, I'm not going to let you guys go. And then he has this thing. He's like, you know, what's your problem is? Why would you even ask that? He's like, you must not be busy enough making bricks. And so Pharaoh's response is like, you know what? You're idle. That's why you're talking like this. So here's what we're going to do. Instead of just making the bricks, the straw that's required to make bricks, instead of me giving it to you, since you guys are so lazy, go out and find your own straw and keep making the same number of bricks. (laughs) To which the people of Israel, they're like, thanks, Moses. Like, that was really nice of you to come here. We're so happy about all the additional work you've given us. Right, they're mad. And in fact, they go and they tell, uh, at the end of five in verse 21, they they say this to, to Moses and Aaron. They said, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, And you have put the sword in their hand. And Moses' response, he's like, oh Lord, why have you done evil to these people? Why did you even send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Do you understand Moses' confusion? I don't know what he expected when God appeared to him at the burning bush. He's like, go and you'll deliver my people. I don't know if, if Moses is like expected this to go downwards. like, hey, Pharaoh, why don't you let him go? Sounds good. All right, see you later. Like, I don't think it's gonna happen like that. And so Moses is, is in this spot and you understand the context and God in chapter seven is gonna call him again to go back to Pharaoh. After having just failed, after having just seen like this just, persecution take place and and things get harder for his people. God calls him in chapter seven. He says this in verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like a God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts, plural, acts of judgment. Verse five, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Verse eight, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And here the second time he says this, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down a staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Okay, things are, we're gonna take a time out there. Things are getting real, right? <laughs> I love that, that they did just as the Lord commanded. He says it twice, that they're perfectly gonna obey. They don't understand how God's gonna deliver all these people, but they trust him enough to obey him perfectly. And before we, we, we talk about the snakes, you have to understand the absurdity of the ask. Because when they exit out of Egypt. Again, I don't know what you have in your mind about how many people he's asking to let go, but we learn later on it's 660 some odd thousand men of fighting age, plus women and children. You're talking easily two to three million people that are enslaved in Egypt, that are are building cities for them and working hard and and doing all the farming, all the stuff. The Egyptians are able to just sit back because they have this massive amount of people enslaved. And so going, the absurdity of the ask saying, see your whole labor force? Could you just let them go? And uh, and here's the ask. Originally, he, Moses just goes to him and says, hey, God wants us to have a feast and worship him. So we're just gonna go take a three-day journey out in the wilderness. We're gonna worship God and we'll come back. <laughs> Pharaoh's like, I don't think that's what you're asking. In fact, later on in chapter 10, we're gonna see, he's like, I think you have evil purposes in mind. I don't think you're going on just a little mini vacation, like a spiritual retreat and they're gonna come back. He sniffs this out. He knows what's really being asked here. And so for Moses to reappear, God's like, if you're gonna come, my guess is Pharaoh's gonna ask for a little bit of proof, which seems right, right? Pharaoh's gonna say, okay, you're saying God is telling you, show me that, that really God is the one. And so he asked for a sign, and what sign does he give him? He takes his staff, throws it on the ground, and it becomes a serpent, a snake. I don't know if I, what you would do, but if I was Pharaoh, I'd be like, yeah, you, you can go. Like, these people can take sticks and throw them on the ground that they become snakes. I'm be Like, just go. Like, we're good. We'll just order our bricks online from now. Like, we're, we're good, like, that, is, that is, means something to them to, to be able to see that, and this takes place, but I don't know how this, this uh, oh, here's a, let me unpack the snake thing. Egyptians living on the Nile River would have been fascinated by snakes, and partly their fascination came from their fear of snakes. I mean, again, you have to understand what's going on in the times in which they live. And so snakes would have been prevalent and there was a fear. And, and the idea behind it was Pharaoh wanted to make himself that serpent was kind of like their figurehead because in the same sense that a, a, a snake can drive out its enemies, a snake can strike So it is that Pharaoh wanted to view himself as that serpent, as that snake that would would strike his enemies, that would cause terror. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Here, we got a picture, right? So there is a picture of, again, you see the headdress of Pharaoh and how that looks. And we got one more. Uh, Can you go to the King Tut's one? So this this is King Tut, who died at an early age, I think like 18 years old. This is his like burial mask. And so, again, you see the the cobra at the top of his head and how it flares out. And and Nate, if you can go back to that other picture, it represents this cobra that is flared out and ready to strike. And so even how the headdress is kind of looks and is worn is representing that snake, that serpent. And so when he takes a a serpent, a snake, and, and, and throws it on the ground, his staff becomes that. That would have been a direct shot to see their national identity, all that, just kind of slithering on the ground. It would have been likely as offensive as somebody coming to America, grabbing a bald eagle, like wringing its neck and throwing it down. You're like, (laughs) oh, like, hey, that's our bird. And, And and so to, for them to throw, throw down this snake and watch it crawl, but, but I don't know how it says by dark arts what, what happens next. Then Pharaoh, verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11, summoned the wise men and sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and they did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Okay, like talk about like, oh, you, you want to make sticks into snakes? Here we go. I don't know what it, how they did that, if it was a sleight of hand or if they were tapping into some like demonic powers, but nonetheless, they throw it down. It's like, oh, wow, like it's equal. Here we go, two snakes. But look at this next part. <laughs> but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Can you envision that? Like Aaron throws his down and it's a snake and they're like, here and they come back, and like, watch what we can do. And they throw it down, I'm like, ha. Ah. And then can you imagine the scene unfolding as Aaron's staff just goes around to their snakes and just, like, swallows them up, like, <laughs> and goes to the next one, like, gulps it up. And it's like, come here, boy. And then grabs it, and it's back to the staff. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, but if I were Pharaoh, again, I'd be like, you know, you can just go. Like, it's okay. Um... They, they, this scene unfolds, but yet in verse 13, as God had promised, it says, still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God said, I know his heart is hard. He can see this and he's still not going to listen. And you have to understand, Anthem, that this is just a preview. There's going to be 10 plagues that follow, and this is an introductory to say this is, these plagues kind of represent this. This is a foreshadowing where God is going to prove himself superior to Pharaoh, prove himself superior to the magicians, and ultimately prove himself superior to the Egyptian gods. So these plagues are really gonna go after each one of the Egyptian gods. And so one of the gods is, is Ra, the sun god. And so God's like, oh, you like the sun? Watch what I can do. I can make it disappear for three days, right? They would have been direct attacks on those Egyptian gods where God's saying, I will show myself superior. And so in the same way that, that my snake had swallowed up yours, I'm gonna overpower your gods and very soon your army will be swallowed up by the Red Sea. So this is, a, this is a preview. And so, again, there are so many gods in Egypt. They had a, a god for kind of everything. There's over 2,000 gods, some more powerful than others. In fact, I think we got a picture, right, of just all the different gods. You see just the different. Some had bodies of people or, and then a head of a dog or... Just all sorts, and this is just a few. They find these even now like kind of inscribed, uh, inscribed on, in rock, on walls, and um, there's statues, and they would have worshipped all these things. There would have been a God for, for everything. And so the plagues are about to start, and so if you continue looking on, there's 10 of them, and we're going to start with the Nile River, okay? So we got a picture, an aerial view of the Nile River Okay, so this is Egypt. So we were zoomed out. And so there's Africa as it it kind of um, bleeds into the Middle East there. Um, and you can you guess where Egypt's at? See that green part? Yeah, that's where people live. See that sandy looking part? That's where you wander out and die because there's nothing there. And so you see um, how the basin of the Nile is fertile. I think this is like... A recent shot, this isn't like a biblical times map, but you can go on on Google Earth and start zooming in. And you can see this is where the people live and they live along that body of water. It would have been the, the lifeblood of that whole community. You couldn't have wandered too far away because that's where you, you fished. That's what irrigated your crops. And so all of Egypt is kind of pinned along the Nile. And so the first plague, Moses goes back and says, let my people go. Nope, not going to. Okay, then I'm going to turn the Nile, and we got the next picture, Nate. This beautiful, lush river, I'm going to turn it into a river of blood. Right? And so the the goddess of the Nile and and, and that we're supposed to protect this thing, God's saying, watch me be superior to this. And so he turns this into blood, killing all the fish, Exodus 7.21 says, And then you would have thought what that would have done for their agricultural crops, right? It takes away their two primary sources of food in their their crops and their fishing. And God turns it to blood to the point where they have to go dig along the Nile to try and find some water because everything had been turned to blood. That's just one plague. Pharaoh, you wanna let my people go? Nope. Next plague, frogs, right? If you're following along, I think it starts uh, there in Exodus 7 and 8. There's this goddess of fertility. I think the how you would say it is Heket. Heket was this goddess of fertility. It would have been depicted as a woman with the head of a frog. And so supposed to be a fertility. So if you wanted to have babies, you wanted to procreate, you pray to this God. To which God's like, oh, you like frogs? Here we go. I can give you frogs, and frogs come up, guys, and it says in Scripture, they are everywhere, and especially where they're at, if you've seen your Scripture, in the bedroom. This is the one spot that that goddess was supposed to protect and really supposed to flourish in, and, and, and if these frogs are the image of this goddess, can you imagine the scene as they're trying to walk around and not step on like the image of these like, goddesses, there's frogs, everywhere. And I love this scripture it's so funny that, that Moses, if Pharaoh's like, okay, fine. You guys can go. Just get rid of the frogs. To which Moses is like, well, when, when do you want me to get rid of them? So you know that God is God. When do you want me to get rid of them? And Pharaoh's like, tomorrow. Really? Like tomorrow? Like you didn't want to say today, get rid of the frogs, but, but tomorrow. And sure enough, here all these frogs just die. I don't know. Like, Maybe I'm one of the only outdoorsy fisherman guy. Frogs already have a unique odor to them. And then if you can imagine millions and millions of them, like, dying simultaneously, you got to wonder what the Egyptians were thinking, right? Next plague, there's lice or gnats. That's three. Four, there, there's, there's flies, Next is the plague on livestock. And these cattle were, were viewed as sacred animals, deities, and, and they had gods too. And, and God goes and makes the Egyptian livestock uh, sick. Uh, the next one is boils. They're, they would add had a goddess that was supposed to protect them from sickness and disease, but yet God allows them to be affected by boils, to which at this point, the people of, uh, of Egypt are starting to see this pattern like, Moses goes to see Pharaoh, says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. And so Moses said, okay, there's going to be a plague. By this time, the people are catching on and they're seeing a pattern. And I love that. that uh, and here's one of those interactions. If you're in your Bibles, again, we're taking multiple chapters. Exodus 9. Exodus 9, verse 13. This is how those, the, the confrontations went. Then the Lord said to Moses in chapter nine, verse 13, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send a plague on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence but but uh, and been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you. Uh, let me slow down this, 916. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself, says God, against my people and will not let them go. And you're saying, what you're saying here, he's like, I can do this all day. If you're not going to humble yourself, then I will humble you. You're still exalting yourself. And so I'm going to continue with these plagues and continue to humble you. And so going into seven, we see that he's going to bring about this hail and this, and he's going to start to destroy some crops. And he says, anybody that's out in the field, any livestock that's left out there, they're going to be pummeled with hail, which I'm like, how big a hail if you're killing a cow, right? Like, these big things of hail they're gonna come down and they're gonna start just crushing people and killing them. And I love this, even in your your Bibles, when it it talks about this, some of the Egyptians heard what what Moses said. And they're like, yeah, I think we're gonna go with the God of the Hebrews on this. And they usher their livestock under shelter and they get in there and they show regard for the Lord and they're saved along with their livestock because they believe this is really gonna happen. Other Egyptians are just out there and sure enough, here comes the hail and it wipes out. And then it wipes out kind of their luxury crop. This would've been the time where there would have been flax and barley. And so if that's not enough, here comes plague eight. We're gonna take out the good stuff with locust. Again, there would've been a ruling God of the crops of that land. And God's like, watch what I'm gonna do. And he brings about plagues of locust. The ninth plague, darkness. This would've been against the uh, Ra, which would've been the God of sun. And he would have been considered one of the greatest of all the Egyptian deities. And he was supposed to rule over the sun and help it shine. And so the fact that God made it dark for three days would have seriously called into the question even the, one of the great gods of Egypt, Ra. And it's not in our text, but next week we're going to learn about the 10th and the final plague where God's going to go after Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh who was thought to be a living God and the plague of the firstborn. And God is saying, I am gonna come against you. And what will your response be? As I overpower you time and time and time again. So when you look at it in their town, when we study, we have to say, what's going on in their town? Because they had a God for everything and they would have just carved it, they would have bowed down and worshiped to it. But when you look at our town, kind of the question is, are we really all that different? See, the question this morning isn't, do you worship something? It's what or who do you worship? See, we in our hearts, we're gonna bow down, we're gonna worship something, but the question is, who or what do we worship? So I'm thinking through this illustration. You gotta work with me on it. Is uh, Oops. God, Um, this idea that if you can imagine like something's on the throne and and what is kind of ruling your life and you're like, yeah, let's just get this out of the way. I stole this from my daughters this morning. So some people, there's gonna be something. Something is gonna be, your life is gonna be revolving around something and I'm gonna just list a number of possibilities, right? You see some people, sports is their thing. Do you know what it takes to have your kids in soccer anymore? Like little pee wee people chasing around a ball this size and like the level of commitment. And this can become like a God for some people where your life revolves around sports. I absolutely know that that was true of me in high school. That the decisions I made when I went to bed, what I ate, how I lifted weights and spent time was revolving around sports. I don't know if I would have ever taken a football, you know, and like got down. I'm like, oh, football gods, like I worship you with everything. No, but if you looked at my time, if you looked at my affections, if you looked at what I thought about, that was what was true. Does that make sense? I want to help you identify your gods, So don't just think like, well, I mean, I don't, I don't bow down to a ball. Yeah, but does your time, does your schedule bow down to that? I man, I think that even good things can become gods. I know for me, like relationships. Here's a picture of our family. Like you can, if you're not careful, all of a sudden your family can become your God, meaning your decisions get solely based around your family. And hear me say, family is a good thing, but it's not God. In fact, we got a, a, a young man in our church right now that is parents are are sick, and and to realize that that if your trust is in people, if your whole world revolves around them, again, that's a faulty thing that that even people are gonna come and go. I think it's Psalm 118.8, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. That, that, That it's a good thing, but it's not a God thing to revolve your whole life around simply family. Some people will on here is my job. Like, I, I love my job. My job, I feel worth from it. I feel respect. And so my, my world revolves around my job. And that's what I think about. I, I love it. I love going to work more than a, I, I come home and I'll skip church things because I really want to do well at, at my job. And that becomes an idol. And here's the thing. I'll just say this in passing too. Our hearts are like idol factories. I remember, blew out my knee. And so, here, can you catch that? So people stop looking at that. Okay, blew out my knee. And it's like, oh man, now I don't have that idol. And it's like, they just grow back. <laughs> it's like, so now this is my new idol, you know? Relationships. Does that make sense? Have you ever had something you just longed for, you thought about, and it's like, yes, I got it. And you realize how insufficient it is? I don't know, uh, man, I use this illustration a lot, but it's true. I'm like, if only I had a new truck. Guys, I haven't had my truck for like nine months. And I'm like, if only I had a new truck again, right? Like they never, never suffice. It's never enough. And so I don't know what it is. I'm trying to name some of them. I think some people is like comfort. Comfort is what drives me. I want my my life to be comfortable, and so I want to take jobs to help me be comfortable. I want to have relationships that are comfort. I want to talk about Jesus in in a comfortable way. And so motivated by comfort when you make decisions. Some people are motivated by maximizing fun and entertainment. Ah, that just doesn't sound very fun to me, so I'm not going to do it. I think there's a number of things that you could spend your time and energy and effort on. And Tim Keller, again, he says, our hearts are like idol factories, be it they revolve around uh, what or who. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know. I think, I think when I look at what's on the throne, it's probably just like me. <laughs> like I view myself as the most important thing. I wouldn't say this and I don't know how to bow down to me, but, but you're on the throne And here's what I think our scripture is saying. If we can learn anything from the Egyptians, if you can look at this narrative, you have to understand that you can either be humble or you're gonna get humble because God will not play second fiddle. Not to any of these idols. And God is saying, watch me destroy Crush, and I'm gonna allow Pharaoh's heart to be so hard so I can prove it over and over and over again. And guys, we're gonna see later on in Exodus, they're walking out, and this is after the whole Red Sea incident. Again, I, I, I want to save some of the fun, but they're going, and nations would see them coming and like, oh your God, we've heard about him. What he did in Egypt through the plagues, that reputation has preceded you about your God. And there was a fear and trembling that seized the people in that day because what God had done to the Egyptians. And I beg you, if you've been through this, I believe that God loves you enough to again, take away idols. Not because he doesn't like you, but that he loves you And he knows that these things will never fill until he is on the throne. Jesus wants to be Lord of all or not at all. God doesn't want to just have a little part of your life is what that means. He wants the whole thing. He doesn't want just a Sunday slot or or a prayer at mealtimes. God wants your whole life. Will you give it to him? And the fun thing is, kind of the take home, is we're going to celebrate some baptisms this morning. And what that means is there's people that have said, my trust is fully in Jesus. I accept him for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm tired of living for my job. I'm tired of living for these things that will never fill. My trust is in God. And they're going to get to share their stories this morning about how God has radically changed their lives. And as you listen to them, I would want you guys to to rejoice with them, but at the same time, ask, Lord, is there something that is competing for your attention? Is there something that is competing for your affirmation? And I would beg you (laughs) to surrender that and put that to death before God takes it. Because I'm telling you, if he, in love, loves you, he will take that. And it'll be to his glory to remove that so you can worship him alone.